0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We need you to continue to work in us that we might worship you in your word. Accomplish your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Marketing groups often coin interesting slogans. And among car companies, there are a few particularly interesting slogans that I, I found Acura has this slogan: "The road will never be the same." And Audi never follow. BMW has had a number of slogans through the years. One was "Sheer driving pleasure." The other that I liked particularly was "The ultimate driving machine." I know, contrary to popular belief, it does not mean "Bring my wallet." I don't bump. Um, Ford had the uh, wonderful expression, built Ford tough. They would not want the slogan to be found on road dead, of course. GMC with, uh, we are professional grade. And Porsche, there is no substitute. Did you know that I had a Porsche one time? (laughs) I did. I had a Porsche, and before I ever put my hands on the steering wheel and drove it, my brother totaled it. Can you tell him a little bit? You know, irritated still? I'll get over it one of these days. Porsche, there is no substitute. And then Mercedes-Benz. Now, some of you know that I had one of these. Miss Cole, you remember my nice yellow Mercedes-Benz? Unlike any others, one of their expressions. And I really like this one. Engineered to move the human spirit. I also had a Volkswagen one time. In fact, it was the last car that I had before I was married. Uh, I, I was, this, this was going to be like our marriage mobile, this um, Volkswagen Rabbit, and I was delivering pizza in Coventry. Driving up a hill, <laughs> the engine blew. That was the end of that. Well, they have had a couple of interesting, uh, many interesting slogans. I'll only share a couple of them. Drivers wanted, it's pretty catchy. Uh, here's, a, here's a good one. Relieves gas pains. <laughs> Not sure what you're getting out there, Volkswagen. <laughs> but my current favorite is uh, the Lexus Automobile Company. And their, their slogan has been, The Relentless Pursuit of Perfection. The Relentless Pursuit of Perfection. I think that to be an interesting slogan. The concept that they're conveying is the idea that they're not satisfied with the current stage the current accomplishment, there's more to be done. There's more to be done. Uh, Whatever your thoughts about the car company, uh, the concept being communicated can easily be related to our spiritual lives. Uh, In the book of Ephesians, we're in Philippians, but in the book of Ephesians, Paul speaks about God gifting the church, giving gifts to the church. And those gifts are listed in Ephesians 4.11. We're going to come back to this a little later and actually look at the text. But he gave to the church apostles and prophets. You'll remember those were the ones that carried forth the communication of the Word of God. They they were the ones who were used to record and proclaim those foundational truths in the New Testament, apostles and prophets, and then evangelists, those who, who bring that message of the gospel out to bring people into the church, and then pastors and teachers. And the the job of the pastors and teachers is to equip the church, the body, equip the church to do the work of the ministry. And this endeavor is to continue on in the church until the church meets the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. In other words, the job of the church is not done until the church perfectly reflects Christ. We have... An agenda. We have a, a, a mission, and that is to bring the church to Christ-likeness. And Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, and the text that we have before us, is really bringing that point to our attention. Now, before we can even dive into the, the, the specific portion of text that we have, which is verses 12 through 16, we have to remember that, that Paul has been been expressing something about the Christian life that's going to lead us to this point of passionately reaching this goal, passionately driving toward reaching this goal to be like Christ, the, uh, his, his Lord and Savior. In, in the section of Scripture from, from verse 11 to 16, we see a number of of Greek words that let us know, a number of Greek words that let us know that Paul has not reached this level of Christ-likeness that he's been set aside for. Uh, So he uses a number of terms that are very similar, but but have some unique meanings. And so I just want to share a a number of these with you. I know some of you don't like Greek, Greek words, but I hate to break it to you, that's how the Bible was written. In the New Testament, it was written in Greek. and the Old Testament, it was written in Hebrew. And so in order to really have a, a fuller understanding, sometimes we have to understand some of these words. And so here in verse 11, he used the word katentao, which has the idea of arriving at something. He wants to arrive at the resurrection of the dead. He, he wants to, to be just like Christ one day. And and as we celebrate every single week the resurrection of Christ, Jesus Christ is the first fruits, the first fruits, the first of many that have slept in Jesus. And so we have this confidence that we will one day arrive at that place. In verse 12, he uses three, uh, four, three different terms, but uh, one of them he uses twice. He uses the word lambano, which has the idea of taking or receiving, He uses the word katalambano, which has the idea of taking possession of. He uses that term two different times. And he also uses the Greek term uh, teleao, which is to finish or bring to an end. So let's look at the verse. Look at verse 12. It says, not that I have already obtained this. That's to... to the the uh, the word lumbano, I have not already received this or am already perfect. That's telea'o, that's the idea of coming to a conclusion. But I press on to make it my own. That's the contact uh, the the taking possession. That's katalumbano. That's I haven't grabbed onto this thing in a in a tangible way so that it's a finished product. I haven't reached it as I have been reached by Christ. He uses that word katalumbano in I haven't gotten there, but he has told us that Christ has gotten him. Christ has taken possession of me. He has possessed me, and the reason for which I've been possessed, I have not grabbed onto that thing yet. You, you see what he's getting at here? So he, he's driving this point home. He's using very specific terms to bring it to our attention. He uses that same word, katolambano again in verse 13. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own or taken possession of it. In verse 14, he uses the word scopas. It's the, the idea of a distant mark that's looked at, the end goal. And so he says, I press on toward the goal. I'm pressing on toward this, this thing that is the finished product. The goal is to be like Christ. Then he uses again in verse 15 the word uh, telea'o. He says, let those of us uh, who are mature. We're, we're going to have to talk about that because... Uh, the concept there is, well, have we reached our end goal? Those of us that have reached our end goal. Do you think he's saying that? There's something more, and we're gonna we're gonna dive into that toward the end of our time together. Uh, and then in verse 16, he uses the word phthano. Fhtano. It means to achieve a particular state. Look what he says in verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let us hold true To what we have attained. The concept there is, let us march in line with where we have arrived. We have attained unto something, and he says, let us continue on attaining the way we've come to this point. And so we'll talk about that. This brings us to an important concept that undergirds this passage. And to this point in Philippians chapter 3, we've seen some of these main ideas that Paul has been discussing. Over just we're just going to rifle through this. It's going to be on the screen, but this is essential for us to understand. He's telling us what true believers are like. He's telling us what true believers are like in this chapter. He says in verse 2 of the chapter, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He says, For we are, not we want to be, not we might be, not we're striving to be. He says, we are the circumcision. That's a, it's, a, it's a symbolic term. We are truly Christians. We are truly God's people. We are truly the ones that have been redeemed. For we are the circumcision. He tells us three different things that distinguish us. Who worship God by the Spirit of God. Who worship by the Spirit of God. Secondly, who glory or rejoice in Christ Jesus and thirdly we put no confidence in the flesh so he's given us these marks of true believers first of all we worship god secondly we rejoice in Christ Jesus thirdly we have no confidence in the flesh he continues on in verses 4 through 6 to discuss why he what he means by no confidence in the flesh it doesn't matter our background it doesn't matter our pursuit it doesn't matter what we've experienced it doesn't matter our credentials none of that causes us to be true Christians. Instead, what causes us to be true Christians is what it says in verses 7, 8, and 9, and we can summarize by by this. Uh, true believers have complete confidence or faith in Jesus. True believers have complete confidence or faith in Jesus. Look at verse 7 and following. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count those things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So true believers are the ones who have complete confidence in Christ. We have faith in Christ. And that faith results in a a demonstration and an application of Jesus' righteousness to our account. And so we've become true believers. Further, as you look further through this passage, True believers want to have an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what verse 10 says. That I may know him and the power of His resurrection. In other words, I want to see victory in my life and may share in His sufferings. In other words, whatever He has laid out for me, I'm ready to, to, to go in that direction. I'm going to fill up, Paul said in another text, the, the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever it takes to demonstrate and to declare the gospel, I am ready and willing to do. To know Christ intimately. To know Him intimately. And then in, in ver, uh, verses 10 and 11, true believers want to be conformed to Jesus' likeness. True believers want to be uh, conformed to Jesus' likeness. Again, look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And so we, we recognize this importance. The, the whole goal of the Christian life is to reflect Christ. If you want to source a biblical text for that in addition to this, turn to Romans, don't turn, but look later at Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. God, in his love, has beckoned us, called us, justified us, glorified us, for what purpose? That we might be conformed to the image of his son. This is why he rescued us, that we might be like Jesus Christ. This is the goal of the Christian life. In verses 12 through 16, we will notice this, that true believers are passionately pursuing likeness to Jesus. Passionately pursuing likeness to Jesus. In the coming week, we will see in verses 17 through 19, That true believers are not doing this in cooperation with the flesh. We're not pursuing Christ in cooperation with the flesh. Your flesh and my flesh is at enmity with God. My flesh wants nothing to do with God. Do you know? I'm gonna tell you right here I am redeemed. I'm a born again believer, I am united together with Christ. I know that one day I will stand in Jesus' presence and I will be granted entrance into heaven. Not because I'm a swell guy. This guy is anything but swell. My flesh wants other things, other things than God and His way. If we incorporate our flesh into the process of pursuing Christ, what we will find out is we have put on different kinds of fleshly clothes. And Paul lets us know that in verses 17 through 19. And then in verses 20 and 21, there's a reason why we're going through this this march through the chapter because this is essential. To understand properly verses 12 through 16, we have to understand what Paul's getting at in this chapter. This is of great essence. The true believers in verses 20 and 21 are assured, true believers are assured of perfect, Likeness to Jesus. Paul is not set out on this journey simply wishing that this would take place. Paul is on this journey with absolute confidence and assurance that one day he will be perfectly like Jesus. Look at what he says in verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who... Will, that's confidence, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. We're going to be just like him. How is this going to be taken? How is it going to take place? Because I am diligent. Because I am fastidious. Because I am an analyst and I have figured out how the Christian life works. And I'm going to do what I see about the Christian life. That's not what he says. He says, I will be transformed from this lowly condition unto a glorious position not by my power, not by my will, not by my might, not by my wisdom, but by the power that enables him even to subdue or subject all things to himself. The one who spoke the world into existence. The one who said, let there be light, and there was light. The one who commanded the waters to stand still, and they stood fast. You know him? The one who can do that with the breath of his mouth will make me just like his son, Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice that Paul was not just talking about himself here. As if the super saints will be just like Jesus and all of the rest of the peons, they get the scraps. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven. We await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are waiting. And what's going to happen? He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. This is dependent upon the work of God Almighty, not upon me and my finite weakness. If it were based on my finite weakness, I would have much reason to be discouraged. But because it is, it is guaranteed by the power of Christ Himself, I can look at the pursuit that we're about to look at and I don't have to grow weary. I don't have to be discouraged. I have to look and say, this is going to take place. Now, this is not the only place that Paul talks about it in the letter. He's already prepared us for this concept before we even get here. Take a look at Philippians chapter 1, just a page to your left. Philippians 1, six, And I am sure of this, That that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. This is confidence. Uh, Chapter 2 now in verse 12. Chapter 2 in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If it stopped there, we would be discouraged. But it's not. It doesn't stop there. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do or to work His good pleasure. God is at work. He's at work in you who believe. Are you a believer this morning? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? There is a a passionate pursuit that you and I must be engaged in. But that passionate pursuit has a guaranteed outcome. And we are not in a failing proposition here. There's no question that what God has started, God will finish. With all that being said, as we look at this section, which is in chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, we have to see it in light of Paul's utter confidence and his theology that sanctification, that's making us like Christ, is a work of God that is associated with His saving work. God has sanctified us. God is sanctifying us and God will completely sanctify all of his children, or another term you could use is glorification. He will glorify us. He has, according to Romans 8, verse 30, he has glorified us already. So we're looking at Paul's pursuit. That's how this starts. In verses 12 through 14, we recognize Paul's pursuit and to... Gather this. We're just going to put some headings on it so we can have a little bit of uh, a, a way to handle it. He has not reached the goal. That's the first concept he tells us about his pursuit. He has not reached the goal. Look in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brethren or brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. The goal is Christ-likeness. That is the goal of the church. And so hold your hand here. We're going to go over to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four, just one book to your left. The goal of the church, the goal of the individual, is Christ-likeness. Again, I made reference to this passage already. We can pick up the context in verse 10. It says, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he, Jesus, is the one who descended and ascended. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all, until we all, how many? Who is this all? Is this every human being on the face of the earth? Who is the we all? It's every believer. Every believer. Until we all do what? Attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Of Christ. The the goal is that the church would be a demonstration, a declaration, or a proclamation of Jesus Christ. When we gather together, of course, but when we separate as well, we bring the gospel with us. We display Christ in our environment, whether that be a workplace in our home, at the marketplace, wherever we find ourselves, it is important that we spread the aroma of Christ. The truthfulness and the glory of Christ. What does Christ-likeness look like in the believer? Do, Do we have anything in the Scriptures that can paint a clear picture for us so that we're not just talking in ambiguities? Ambiguity doesn't help us much. If, if we're really wanting to display Christ, and if you're a believer, you do. If you don't want to display Christ, it is a, it's a condemnation of your spiritual condition. Believers want to display Christ. We don't always display Christ, but we want to. There are times that we display ourselves, and it gives us great um, disappointment, and we, we confess our sin. We re- repent, and we turn back to Christ. But... If we don't want to display Him, that, that tells us that we don't know Him. How would I be able to demonstrate for, clearly in the Scriptures how, what that would look like? Well, the Bible gives us a very clear picture of it. It's in Galatians 5. It'll be on the screen. You're familiar with it. The Bible says in Galatians 5, and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. That doesn't mean that's the only way that it would come forth. Jesus Christ himself is truth, right? And truth isn't listed there as such. So you could, you could expand upon this, but that's a good starting work for us to understand. Now, who produces the fruit of the Spirit? Well, of course I do well, that would make it your fruit. Right? That would be the fruit of the Christian. The fruit of the Spirit means the Spirit of God does this. Is there any relationship between the Spirit of God and Jesus? (laughs) Well, if you know doctrine, you know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, they are three beings in one entity, one union, one, one triune God. Right? We're not talking about modalism, they they appear one time as the Father, and another time as the Son, and another time as the Spirit. We're talking about three distinct beings that have this union of deity that no one else has. There's one God. That's the the, the people of Israel could continuously bring out in Deuteronomy six four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, or the Lord is union. The Lord is united. That concept is is an Old Testament and a rich term. But as we look at how the the Spirit of God works in us, what he's going to do is he's going to display in us and through us the character of Jesus Christ because they are one. They're one. These fruitful expressions of God's work in our lives are continually called for all through the pages of Scripture. Paul humbly states in this passage, That he does not live out perpetually in fellowship with the Spirit. He does not faithfully, continuously, without error, display Christ. He has not attained that for which he has been attained. Christ is not perfectly seen in his life in every circumstance. We we recognize that. We have not arrived at perfection. You know, as I think of these kinds of things, I always think of cars and sports, so sorry. It's the way it is. After the New England Patriots obliterate an opponent, and it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens regularly, when they obliterate an opponent, if you listen to their press conferences, what you'll hear is Coach Belichick talking about his coaches and players, yeah, they did a good job, uh, proud of them, um, <laughs> but he follows it up and we, need, we have a lot of things we need to do better. A lot of things we need to clean up. If you listen to uh, Tom Brady after one of these uh, great triumphs, he'll say something like, oh, it was, you know, it was a lot of fun out there. Uh, we left a lot of points on the field. In other words, they recognize, okay, we've, we've come here, but we're not done yet. There, there's more to do. There's, 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 there's ways, there are ways in which we must get better. We have to get better. It's, it's the pursuit Of of that which is best. You and I may be progressing along in our worship, in our rejoicing, in our desire to know Christ, and in our displaying Christ uh, in, in our daily lives. But we cannot, we must not grow complacent. Complacency is not consistent with our mission. Complacency is not consistent with our mission. Paul's pursuit is, is first of all recognizing that he has not arrived. Secondly, he is not living in the past. He is not living in the past. Look again at verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind. We cannot be reliving or reveling in our past victories. Again, I'll point you to Coach Belichick. So, so often, the reporters, they're trying, they're trying desperately to get him to say something. So they, they keep on trying. You feel bad for these poor guys. It's their job. They're getting paid, and this guy won't give them anything. But every now and then, he'll give them a little thing that is the same as the last thing he gave them. When they try, try to talk to him about this upcoming a big game. He said, well, last week's game is not going to help us with this game. Last year's victory is not going to help us with this. They try to get him, well, will the experience against such and such and so and so help you as you get ready to gear up for this? He's like, well, you know, uh, everything, you know, a lot of things have changed. This is this year, that was that year. We can't live in the past, essentially, is the idea. Paul is saying a very similar thing. I can't live in the past. Uh, living in the past will always get us in trouble. Sometimes, the thought of some way we felt in the past keeps crippling us. We can be thirsting for some experience that may, uh, maybe God had for us years ago and we're trying to re-experience that thing. And we're longing for it. Churches have this problem all the time. Well, you know what? In in this generation, we had so many people in the church and this was vibrant and this was vibrant and and something happens in the church and things start to fall apart and they have to rebuild and and restart and relaunch essentially and, and they're looking to get back to the glory days. Well, folks, the glory days aren't coming. Don't go backwards and try to recapture something that happened years ago. Going backwards is the wrong direction. Paul is making it very clear. Don't try to relive your past. We cannot be crippled by our failures of the past either. Oh, I should be so much further along by now. Oh, I, you know, I've been, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm so many years old and I, I really feel as though I should really be like X. I should really be like this person or, or like this way. And, you know, if you start thinking about where you should be, for now, you're focusing in the wrong direction. How about, what does God say to do today? Isn't that the job? Isn't the job to live in the present? That doesn't mean we don't ever think about the past and rejoice in what Christ has done for us. Rejoice in our our being redeemed. Rejoice in the the way that God has changed us. We're not saying that. But, Living there and and being bound there is is not good. What good will it do to keep thinking about victories in the past or failures in the past? Well, Paul's letting us know it's not going to help us at all. To To move forward, we must relinquish what has come before. So he says, I'm not living in the past. This is my pursuit. I haven't attained. I'm not living in the past. Thirdly, he was looking to what was next. He was looking to what was next. It says at the end of verse 13, and straining forward to what lies ahead. Straining. Stretching. You Now we, we have a very clear image. He's using a sporting analogy. I know some of you don't like sports, but he's using one here. And he's, he sees the target. He sees the, the end tape. And, and he's using every ounce of his energy. He's not looking over his shoulder at the runner over here because that's going to slow him down. He's looking that way. He is straining every ounce of his effort, every, uh, every muscle in his body, every fiber he has is all stretching forward. He's in a forward lean. He sees the next turn in the race. He's not looking backwards. He's looking to the horizon. One of the running strategies that I've been taught, whether it's good or not, I have no idea because running is not my favorite uh, thing and right now I can't, I can't run anyway. So what difference does it make? So um, to choose some object that's ahead of you and run to it. And then when you get to it, choose another object that's ahead of you and run to it. And then... On and on. So we're straining towards something, not just ambiguously running. Now, for, for some of you strange people that like running, I know you're out there. <laughs> there might be three of you, but I know you're out there. You, you love running. You don't really care what you're running through. You're just kind of running. Maybe you're listening to something, uh, and, and you just could do it for, for hours. And if you don't have enough hours, you're kind of sad. I think if I have more than a minute of running, I've, I've run too far. <laughs> Maybe doesn't you don't need something like that, but for those of us that lack some of that motivation, we have to like look towards something. There's there's some end goal that we're looking at. What lies ahead for Paul? What lies ahead? It's this. How can Jesus Christ be on display in my life? How can Jesus Christ be on display in my life? When he was he was Uh, elaborating with the the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He was talking to them about this this job that we have. We we, we serve the living God. We're we're workers together with God. And he talks about having a, a, a treasure in earthen vessels. And he starts to tell us all of the different challenges that he faced You know, you and I, when we see challenges, we like try to figure out, how can I get rid of this thing? Oh, I don't like this pain. I don't like this problem. I don't like the circumstances. Let me just find a way to get out of it so I can just make things happy. Paul learned in the process of his walk with God and the journey that God had for him that those difficulties were exactly what God had in mind for him because they resulted in the display of of Christ in his life. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 10 and 11. He says, Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested, demonstrated, declared in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You hear what he's saying? I want to display Jesus. I want the death of Christ and the life of Christ to be on display in me. And sometimes that means pain. And sometimes that means Inconvenience. Sometimes that means disappointment. But all of it has an end goal. And Paul said, I am straining forward to that. That demonstration of Jesus Christ in my life. He hasn't attained it. He's not living in the past. He's looking for what is next. Fourth, he was involved in a present pursuit of a future reality. He was involved in a present pursuit of a future reality. Look again now at verse 14. Philippians 3 and verse 14. He says, I press on, currently, right now, I am pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Remember, that is a certain result. Who's the, doing the calling there? It's the call of God in Christ Jesus. Is this going to come to pass? Well, you can see it from verse 14. Yes. You can see it in verses 20 and 21. Yes. You can see it in chapter 1 and verse 6. Yes. You can see it in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yes. It's going to take place. He's involved in this present pursuit, but it's a future definite, it's a reality. It brings us to an important question. Who's pressing? Who's pressing? In this text, in verse 14, who's pressing? Paul. He says, I press toward the mark. But ask the question again, who's pressing? The question is answered beyond just the, the initial view of verse 14 we have to understand the underneath the undergirding of that pressing forward if we don't understand the the undergirding then we're going to misunderstand this passage and we're going to try to press and we're going to run out of air we're going to run out of steam our cardiovascular system can't handle it and we're going to say i give up many many people who have called themselves christians whether they are or not i'm not judging it's not my place Many people who call themselves Christians stopped. Wonder why they stopped? Because they found themselves, like we find ourselves, failing. And we look at ourselves and we say, you failure. What's the matter with you? Something's wrong with you. It's true. It's true. But I want to tell you something. Our biggest problem in that scenario is we're looking in the wrong direction. The more we look inward, the more we find ourselves greatly displeased. Unless you are not honest when you look inwardly. If you're honest when you look inwardly, you find yourself to be a failure on so many fronts. But Paul helps us to understand what undergirds his passionate pursuit of Christ. And I want for us to turn there, please. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if you have one of our church Bibles, that is on page 961. 961. 1 Corinthians 15. The whole context of 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection. He tells them in the first few verses what the Gospel is, and the Gospel is confirmed by the resurrection. He starts to talk about how Jesus, after His resurrection, appeared to these disciples, and how He appeared to 500, etc., etc. We pick it up in verse 8, in that discussion of the authentication of Jesus' resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. Last of all, as to one Untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Listen carefully now. But by the grace of God I am what I am. So many times when you hear that, that's the end of the sentence. By the grace of God I am what I am. Like I've got this problem, I've got that problem, there are some good things, some bad things, and they they just leave it at I am what I am. Well, Paul doesn't leave it there. Paul doesn't say, well, Kesara Sarah, what will be will be. He has something else to say. Verse 10 and his grace toward me was not in vain or emptiness. On the contrary, listen carefully. I worked harder. I worked harder. One more time. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul doesn't take credit for his passionate pursuit, nor should I. Paul lets us know where grace abounds, passion for Christ abounds. Where grace is cherished, and received, and in operation, Christ is displayed. So he says, I press toward the mark of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I am passionately tracking with Him, but don't forget, though I worked harder than any of them, it's not I, but Christ who works in me. The grace of God that works in me. It's not about the individual. It's about the individual's understanding and faith in Christ. As we pursue the goal of Christ-likeness, there is there is an intensity necessary. For the believer, this intensity is supplied by the grace of God. True believers experience the grace of God. True believers are motivated and moved and transformed by the grace of God. Let's suppose you sit in your seat where you are and you think, well, I don't feel moved. Be of good cheer. The solution is to trust Christ. Don't respond to your failures with despair. Respond to your failures with a turn from yourself and your ways and a turn toward Christ and his salvation. And the grace of God will move you, motivate you, and transform you. This is Paul's pursuit. That's what we've seen heading back to Philippians This is Paul's pursuit. Is it simply the pursuit of the super saint? Because Paul is spectacular, isn't he? Like, did you write a New Testament Bible letter to anyone? Did God ever record your writing and say, Oh, one of my inspired letters. He, he, He is spectacular. But he is also ordinary. There's nothing spectacular about his spiritual life other than what God has done. And so he immediately changes gears from himself to the need of the corporate body. And so we move from Paul's pursuit to our pursuit in verses 15 and 16. We're almost done, so don't sit there in despair in your seats as though you're never going to eat lunch. You will eat lunch, I promise. Verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So the way that Paul thought and strove and pursued is the same way that all believers ought to perceive life. The word mature in verse 15 is an interesting word. Again, it's teleao. Let me read to you what William Hendrickson, he did a wonderful job of just bringing this down to to really the lower shell for us, so we can understand it. Of all the explanations offered to explain teleaos, as here used, the one which regards it as meaning mature, full grown here with respect to knowledge of the way of salvation. Do you hear that? It's not like, ooh, this person is really spectacularly Christian. No. Anyone that has come to a place where they understand that, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has come to full maturity of the way of salvation. He says, the telea, teleaoi, that's to pluralize it, way to go in your Greek, advanced Greek grammar now, uh, the, the way that the mature ones are exactly the ones who in full assurance of their own imperfection reach the goal. In other words, the ones that are mature are the ones that recognize, I have not arrived. That's what Paul's saying, I, I have not attained what I've been attained for. Those who are mature recognize they haven't arrived, is what he's saying. We, we're, the reason we're mature is because we've understood that what salvation is through Christ, and those that are mature that way recognize they also have not arrived. As we look at this, we have to understand, first of all, that God is not unconcerned about this process. And he's not uninvolved. So what we see in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way, And if anything, you think otherwise, I have arrived. That's the otherwise, right? God will reveal that also to you. In other words, God will enable you to see the folly of your perfectionism. Well, I really have come a long way in my Christian walk. Oh, look at me. If you really want to know what Christ-like living is, come and follow me. Spend some time with me. I will show you and you know what's going to happen? You're going to have some children. <laughs> Those of you that have children know why I said that. Because they do things, and you want to instruct them, and you want to love them, and you want to care for them and coddle them, and be good, good parents, and good role models, and everything else. And sometimes, you occasionally will get frustrated. And you'll say, boy... I didn't display what I ought to display in that scenario. Be sure, the higher you think of yourself, the more likely it is that God will send something into your life to lower your image. Unless, unless you're not one of God's children. In which case, you may go on thinking finely of yourself. Thinking highly of yourself. If, If you want another text for it, we're not going to turn there, but you can see Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11 in that regard. Now here's here's the here's the kicker of our of our time together. We're almost finished. We're talking about our pursuit, ready? The pathway toward Christlikeness is a pathway of exchange. The pathway toward Christlikeness is a pathway of exchange. Verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have Attained. I want to ask you a question. How did you attain salvation? Or to state it differently, how were you obtained by God? Can we come into possession of salvation by adding Jesus to our lives? Ladies and gentlemen, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. And I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night so I don't have like this profound wisdom, but I want to tell you that one of the challenges of modern Christian churchianity, I said that exactly the way I meant to, is that most of what is being offered is adding Jesus to your life. If you just want to add something really cool and nifty into your life, Go to the gym. Get on a bike and cycle around. It'll be, that'll be fun and it'll be profitable. If you're just looking to add something to your life that'll make you feel a little better about life, just go and, and exercise and you will feel better about life. But if you're looking for God to transform you, he's not going to transform you by adding a little Jesus into your life. That doesn't, that is not the plan of salvation. That is faulty gospel. We don't say, oh, I need a little Jesus or I need a lot of Jesus and keep everything else the same way it was. The pathway of salvation, this is is real life, folks. We're talking heaven and hell right now. The pathway of salvation is you for Christ Christ. Or Christ for you. It's an exchange. Listen to the way the apostles preach the gospel in the book of Acts. It's not just believe. It's repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn from your way. Turn from what you're holding on to. And that's exactly what Paul says earlier in this text. He says, look, I had all these credentials. I had this background. I had all these things going for me. And what I learned, it's done. It's useless. It won't gain me anything. I see it as actually a great detriment to me. Instead, what I've realized is that when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I finally had everything. I would give it all up for the excellency, the surpassing excellency of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So he tells us already how he came to Christ. And he's speaking to a group of believers. And he says, as you've already attained, this is how you follow through. Walk the way you entered. How did you enter? You exchanged your life for Christ's. You know what your life results in? Damnation. You know what Christ's life results in? Embrace eternal joy in the presence of God. It's a very easy decision to make if it were that simple. Oh yeah, I can either go to hell or I can go to heaven. I can spend eternity with God or I can spend eternity in separation from God. If it was as simple as a decision like this, this, this um, a pros and cons list, everyone would make the decision to go to heaven. But what Paul says is, God rescues us. And He's given us this exchange. He's given us the life of Christ. And just the same way that you entered, the same way that you have attained this life of Christ is the same way that you order your daily life. So what that means is, in our daily life, there is an exchange. The exchange continues in the Christian life. We lay aside our passions. We lay aside our old way. And we put on Christ. This is a relentless pursuit. We will never in this life feel like we're done. I want to give you the bad news first. In this life, you won't be finished with this process. You, cannot, you and I can sense in us longings of our flesh that run contrary to what we've learned about Jesus Christ. This is why we've been told in Romans 8.13, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. But there's good news as well. Paul has couched this entire passage in the good news. The good news is that there's a coming day when God will bring this pursuit to an end. It will be glorious. It will be victorious, the victor of this pursuit is God himself through the work of Jesus Christ applied by the Holy Spirit. If a car company can pursue perfection in order to corner the market on luxury automobiles, can you and I not pursue Christ-likeness empowered by the Holy Spirit in accordance with the truths of Scripture. I want to tell you, we can. Yet not I, but Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We're in desperate need. We don't want to live this life empowered by our own resources. We, we want to set aside our nature and our passions and our lusts for All manner of evil. And we want by your spirit to be empowered by your grace to display Jesus Christ in our lives. We know there's a coming day for those of us that know Jesus is our savior where we will be perfect. All of this will come to an end. We look forward to that day. In the meantime, in the days between now and your completing your work of salvation in us, We pray that you would help us to pursue after your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in that pursuit, you would put your Son on display in us. Not for our benefit, not for our own personal workings, but for your glory and for the salvation of those